I'm Dr. Jason Kessler. Years ago, I learned something, something that wasn't new at all. I learned that there's not a single person that you'll ever meet that you can't learn things from. In the Professor Anyone podcast, I interview people from all walks of life, and we discover what together we can learn. My guest professor today is Tammy Gingrich. Tammy is a middle school teacher from the Twin Cities. She has two daughters, one of whom is, is an international adoptee. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Tammy, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, and thank you for having me. It's been so long since we've chatted. Well, now let me let me ask you a little bit about your profession. You are a middle school teacher and you love being a middle school teacher. And that just seems to me like it would be the most challenging age group to work with. I guess it all depends on how you view a middle schooler. If you're a person that thinks that their quirks and antics are annoying, then you're just going to end up rolling your eyes at them. But if you're a person who walks away and says that's just the age group and they really can be funny, then daily you will go home with lots and lots of stories of just how humorous they really are and how awkward that age is. Because I don't think I know any adult that would look back and go, oh, I really would love to go back to middle school. I just, I do not know that person. College, maybe. Early 20s, yes. Middle school, couldn't pay me. So we try to have lots of fun. And they're very, very entertaining. Give me some examples of how entertaining middle schoolers can be. Many times middle schoolers are very talented at saying really weird things. Like I've had students go up in arms and get frustrated and not know how to move forward. And then they say things like in the middle of a science lecture, when I'm trying to teach about, let's say the electromagnetic spectrum. And one kid just stands up and goes, oh my gosh, I don't know how to spell UV rays. Or the silliness that that is in the hallways and the conversations that they have. Walking around and all the lingo that they have, I have to rely on them to teach me what the words mean. So the food is so bussin'. It's just, oh, I need my own little translator sometimes. So, <laughs> all right, so what did you just say? <laughs> uh, food is great. This is like oh. a killer meal. I would eat this again and again if I could. It's that good. I get, I don't understand them sometimes. And then I just ask them, teach me, you know, just like your podcast. It's all about, all of us have information that we want to know. Middle schoolers, really, it's their own world and they are highly entertaining. I imagine they have a lot to teach us. Tell me about a goal that you have achieved and one you're still working on. Uh, long ago. I had always had the dream that I wanted to be free of my household. So I grew up in a household that wasn't exactly a happy household. And I wanted to always strive to have a happier household, be successful, and definitely not be in a situation that my mom was in, which was having to stay married to somebody because of the constraints of not having a job that would be able to support herself alone and to be able to make good choices as a strong woman. I always wanted to be an independent person to be able to say, I want to be happy by myself 
first and foremost. And then whatever comes my way, I hope it fits in with what my goals are. So I went off to college, got my degree, and pursued further degrees afterwards just to be able to continue my own personal success as well as I just love to learn. I went back to school to get my master's degree, and then I went back to get an administrative degree. And I can truly say that I have become, well, I hope, a really good version of myself. There's always self-improvement to be made. And uh, I'd like to continue to say that I'm evolving and becoming a, a better person, a better human. I think I'm on a good track. Second goal is I'd want to raise my children and have a great family. Because all of us, if we teach our families and our kids that that's the first thing to take care of, then I think everybody is just happier and more content. Because again, I didn't have that growing up. If we're constantly in a state where we're not feeling like we belong, then we don't necessarily get that inner peace to be our, our own advocates and our strength. I'd like to think that I've, I've done a pretty good job of that. You commented a little bit on some of the difficulties of your childhood. Can you think back to your childhood and think of one one day, one, one specific event, one something that went on that you think really helped shape who you are today? I actually remember the day that I decided that I wanted to be a teacher. Growing up, again, I really wanted to get out of my house. I really wanted to be independent and trying to figure out what you want to do as a career to be successful, to be able to live on your own, be able to have your own money, then it turns into what do I want to do? And I remember being in an elementary classroom and it was part of a high school class where I got to go into elementaries and just work with kids. And I remember feeling so calm and so natural. Oddly enough, it was with one of our foreign exchange students who was from Sweden. And he just looked at me and went, you're good at this. You, you can do this. I'll just watch, you know, that typical, I'll stay out of your way. That's how I'll help. <laughs> so it was a, it was a good day. It was one of those forming of, of definitely who I became. And it was one of those aha moments in life where you look back and go, ha, ah, yes, that's where it comes from. Aha. And that was, that was not your first experience in working with kids or teaching. I think for many young ladies, it starts with the babysitting. That's where, that's where it really starts. You know, yeah. then, then you get paid and then you're like, ha, this I get paid to do? Sweet. So I did the babysitting. And then as a lifeguard, I was always with kids teaching swimming instruction. So I was always around little people. It was just fun. I always felt like imparting wisdom or instruction was something I could do. And it, I didn't feel like I had to work real hard at it. Now, talk about classroom instruction. That's all. That's a lot of work. But at that time, it felt just really natural. Then I started doing coaching of basketball. I don't think there was really ever a part of my life where I wasn't around young people, either with, with family or with friends or activities I was involved with. It just, it was always, always around little people where I got to just hang out with them. Maybe I connect better with them or maybe it was just easier Sometimes adults are scary. Do you have some tips or tricks, some things that you've discovered from working with uh, the middle school students that really help you to relate better to them, 
to control them, to be able to teach to them. <laughs> what are your tips you for know, the rest of us? <laughs> well, the biggest thing I have found is that the the world of trying to make connections is all about how do you make sure that you not shame students, you celebrate students, and you leave them with dignity. That was something that someone had taught me early in my career and has always stuck with me. And if you can make the connections doing those things, they're always going to be stronger and the trust is going to be built a lot faster. Many times I see teachers trying to have conversations with kids in front of the class, which brings the shame, embarrassment. So I always teach my classes, you know what, if I need to have a hallway conversation with you, it's just going to leave everybody happier. Nobody needs to know your business. Nobody needs to know if you're having a bad day. Nobody needs to know what's happening at home, but it'll give us some time. And so I'll take students out into the hallway and I'll say, I just want you to take a deep breath. I see that you're frustrated. How can I help you? Have you ever seen the show New Amsterdam? I don't believe I have. Okay, it's it's a medical show, kind of like ER or Grey's Anatomy. But the head person always talks to people and says, how can I help you? And I think that's a really good way for students, other adults, any conversations. What can I do for you? How can I help you? always seems like like you're reaching your hand out to help like we're a team and when when students have the ability to share with you in private and you continue to strengthen them and you hear them i think that it goes a long ways and i've had very good success especially with my most challenging young men who have their they have to keep their persona of the tough guy. And as soon as you you extend that hand uh, and offering help, it helps to keep loyalty, which is a big thing for young, young kids. Loyalty, you're not disrespecting them, and they get to save face. And if I can do all of those things and still work with them, it's so much easier to work with them in the classroom. But I think that's human nature too. I, I think all of those things that you've described, you know, that 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 saving face or, uh, you know, being able to celebrate people and and keep their dignity is something that is important in our dealings with everybody every day. But oftentimes we sort of let that go by the wayside for kids. I'm not sure why that is, but sometimes it's easier to it, it's easier to treat kids differently than adults. And sometimes the key to working with kids, and I found this too, you know, in my in, in my practice of seeing kids as patients, is to treat them more like you would treat an adult. Obviously, there are some things that need to be a little bit different, but if we do treat kids and adults with that same level of of respect, I, I think that goes a long way towards establishing more successful relationships with them. Oh, I completely agree. I think one of the big things when that adult wants to make sure you know that you're the, they are the authority and you're the lesser, you should listen to me and I am towering over you. But it, and I never grew up understanding the let's work together or you have your own voice. And I think that's what I have strived so hard to not lose ever again is my own voice. And so I want to help kids with making sure that they understand that they have a voice. And when problem solving, 
Most middle schoolers, it turns out, I'm going to share a secret. They don't know how to do that. They don't know how to problem solve. <laughs> and many times it comes out sideways. And so if I teach them, okay, so I'm going to tell you my perspective. And then I want to hear your perspective. Then let's come together afterwards. But you have to take the time to stop and listen. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I really like the analogy that you used of reaching out your hand to help. Sometimes that's literally what you, you know, what you need to do, but, you know, even figuratively too, that how can I help you, you know, asking and getting at that level, that can be a, a marvelous approach to helping people, reaching out that hand to help. You have an experience with international adoption, and I think that would be a great thing for us to talk about. Tell me a little bit about how that happened and, and, and that experience for you. We were at the point where we were thinking it was, we wanted another child and I was on a medication that it turns out there was, I think, a four-page list of birth defects that came along with it. Long story short, it turned out that having another biological child was just not in the cards. So we went to an adoption agency here in the Twin Cities area, started, should I say, interviewing adoption agencies because you want to make sure you go through a reputable facility. We heard a lot during our process about the idea of selling babies. And there were many places and countries in which there was a great concern for it. We ended up going through a fair amount of adoption counseling to try and decide, do we want to adopt domestically or do we want to adopt internationally? And both of them have pros and cons. The biggest con for the for the domestic adoption process was that even after a baby comes home or a child comes home, there is a, still another timeline in which a birth parent, grandparent could come forward and still take back the rights of the child. I couldn't handle the idea of that happening. Anytime you, you start talking about another family member in your house, you want to try to have the least amount of complications possible. We ended up deciding that we were going to go international. And then you have to just decide which country do you want to work through. At the time, there was something called the Hague Convention, which is where countries come together and they decide that adoption will be set up in their country in which things are transparent the process in which a child's adoptive status becomes available as long as a, a set list of checklist items happen. It tries to work through some of those issues of countries that will price gouge a baby and make sure that a baby is not kidnapped or taken from the birth parent so that somebody else can profit. We ended up going through Vietnam, not only because they were part of the Hague Convention, but also because Asian countries very much value their babies. The orphanages are very well cared for, staffed, and babies are a very highly viewed part of their community. So babies are treated really well. They are held, which is extremely important when you're thinking about adopting a child that you have no idea what they're coming to you with emotionally. And so you're trying to make sure that they aren't coming with all sorts of anxieties or attachment disorders. So we 
landed on Vietnam and it took from start to finish three and a half years to actually get her home. So it was an amazingly wonderful process. The paperwork is astounding. I've got two three ring binders filled with paperwork and it has been the most wonderful blessing that I think I could ever experience. And I get to say that I am a mom in two different ways and both are wonderful. Prior to our interview, you had made a, a comment about some of the challenges of, you know, as a white f- family raising a, a child from Vietnam. Tell me a little bit about that. I think we are becoming a more woke nation when it comes to racism and all sorts of other things that people of color experience. Being white, I have never experienced some of the things that my fellow colleagues, friends, my daughter experiences. We can talk about how we celebrate her Vietnamese culture and her Vietnamese characteristics. We can talk about Tet, but the really hard one and the really the hardest conversations come from the things that she experiences as an Asian person in America, growing up in a community that doesn't have a lot of diversity with it. It's growing in diversity, but it doesn't have a lot. If she is one of 20 people in her class that is a person of color, she gets gets to or she endures a lot of comments that I think are things that we have to process at home. And I had heard a friend one time tell me, Tammy, you don't understand. At home, we constantly have conversations about race. You are a privileged person. You don't have to do that every day. And so that got my mind thinking about, as I'm raising this child, I have to bring this up frequently. Otherwise, it is not something that she is going to be able to cope with as she gets older. She's not going to know how to have those conversations. For example, she came home second grade and she was crying. And I'm like, what happened? And she said, mom, one of the teachers told me that I was, I was, I looked just like a China doll. And I said, okay, so how is that hurting your feelings? Tell me more. But mom, I'm Vietnamese. I'm not Chinese. I don't understand. And she hurt my feelings. And I said, okay, so the intent of the person was to share that a China doll is considered something very beautiful in that culture, but you interpret it as an insult because they were calling you the wrong race. And of course, having that conversation with a second grader is extremely tough to navigate because they don't understand the intent of what a China doll is because she has no reference to a China doll. And she just knew that it hurt her feelings. Fast forward a few years, she comes home and she's angry and she's frustrated. And I said, what happened? Well, I went to go sit by a friend, but there were some other people there. And they said to me, you're not white. You can't sit here. And it was just that blatant. We have conversations about, all right, so how do we get through racism? Not go around it, not, not ignore it. How do we go through it. What are some things that you can say to people if you choose to go through it? I gave her some time to think. Sometimes you just have to let people walk away. And she came back the next day and she said, 
So here's what I did, mom. I went home, thought about it last night, and I went this morning and had a plan. Okay, kiddo, what, what was your plan? Well, I went by at lunchtime, chose a different table to sit at, but when I was walking by the other table, I looked at her and I said, I'm so sorry that you feel like I'm not good enough to sit with you, but someday you're going to get to know me and you're going to like me and walked away. Tried to give her a voice as we always do. How do we help anyone? How do we give them some of those tools to help work through the situation without creating more problems afterwards? She is always dealing with the color of her skin. We at home try to celebrate it so that she has the confidence to leave the house and be part of the world. We even gave her as part of her name. She was given a, a birth name of Ayawin when she was born. And the culture says that if you are put up for adoption, you will get the last name of the orphanage director. And Win in Vietnamese is a very common name. So when she came home, we had her birth name changed to Quinn Ayao Gingrich, which now we have an Americanized Vietnamese name because many people here in America spell the name Q-U-I-N-N. But in Vietnamese, it's Q-U-Y-N-H. And it's representing a beautiful flower, a treasured flower in Vietnam that blooms only at night. And then we decided to keep her birth given name as her middle name so that she would continue to hold on to her culture and know where she came from. Now, as of right now, she's not super excited about her. <laughs> and I think many of us growing up go, oh, I don't like my name. I wish I could change my name. But I hope that later on in life that she grasps the true meaning of it and that it is part of her identity and that her name was actually thought about. You've encountered some of the same things for your students that that you encountered with your daughter. Absolutely. And sometimes middle schoolers don't even realize what they're doing. Uh, I would say about three weeks ago, I was walking down the hallways and I heard this group of boys talking and they said, oh, me and my clan, we're going to get together. We're going to hang out. We're going to do this, this, and this. And I stopped and I said, hey, gentlemen. Oh, and by the way, the group of boys that were, were talking were mixed races. So there was a black student, a Hispanic student, and a white student, and you know this whole other group of people. And I said, I just want to let you know that when you say you're going to be a part of a clan, there's actually history to that. Do you know what the word clan means and where? It... <laughs> and so I started going through some of the history of clan and they all looked at me and went, oh, no. And I said, hey, sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And we hope that somebody teaches us somewhere along the way so that we can make those corrections. Otherwise, if we don't make the corrections, We'll never know. What was your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? After I'd gotten my administrative license, I started to try and get some experience, try and put myself in different positions. And I had done a summer school program in which I was the administrator. One of the things that I don't really think about with kids is how my actions are coming across. If your actions aren't understood with intent, those actions can go sorely wrong. I had a, a teacher that was working with me 
And I was trying to help or what I perceived as help. One of the things that teachers tend to complain about is how visible is the administrator? We always want to see administrators being part of the school, part of hallway time, part of lunchroom duty time, part of classroom. You know, we want to see them actively engaged as well. And that's what I was trying to do. However, this person didn't know me very well, especially in the capacity of an administrator. And so my helping hand was being perceived as I was not perceiving her as doing a good enough job. So I learned that I need to communicate better with my actions so that if people don't know me, how am I making sure that they know that I do have positive intent so that later on it doesn't turn into a a massive misunderstanding? One of the things that your story reminded me of is in leadership training, we had a lot of emphasis on the idea that you need to assume good intent from the people that you are dealing with, but people are not good at that, right? We <laughs> we know what we know, what we have direct information and experience with, and, and the information that we don't have, our brains like to make up, and they tend to make up the negative rather than the positive. So it's really it takes the conscious effort to always assume that positive intent. And one of the things that you mentioned was how can I communicate and how can I make it so that people do understand my good intent? And I think both of those are, they're different sides of the same coin. How can we, how can we assume the positive intent of the people that we're dealing with and how can we project and communicate our own positive intent. If you're starting to find that somebody's intent isn't seemingly positive, how do we say, could you please explain that in a different way? I tend to use that statement a lot because I want somebody to be able to say that they're in positive intent and that they are trying to do what is either best for kids or best for the relationship. And I think so many times we don't have good phrases or ways to ask what someone's intent is or what is the purpose of your action or what you just said so that I can better understand where you're coming from. I want that perspective. And Tammy, to me, I see a great parallel between that and what you were discussing earlier about celebrating people and maintaining their dignity, never shaming people as you don't shame them by assuming they have a negative intention. Find out what that is, what that intention is. What is the best advice that you ever, ever received? Give yourself permission to not do things because it turns out I like to say yes. And I like to tackle things. I love to move forward and I want to try the next thing and I want to experience it just like this. I've never done a podcast before. I was super nervous. Oh my gosh. But does that stop me from doing it? No, because I think we all should try new things. I think we should all take risks. The greatest stories come from the risks that we took. I tend to like to try things. I like to experience. I like to go say, oh my gosh, for the first time ever, I did this. And then it might not be just the first time. I might do it again and again. But if we don't stop sometimes and give ourselves permissions to say no, I think that that can, at least for me, it was not going to be a good situation if I didn't give myself permission to say no. As you're talking, I, I wrote down one of the things you said. You know, the greatest stories 
come from the risks that we took. I mean, you should, that should print that on t-shirts or something or, or greeting <laughs> cards or, you know, that should be, that's, you know, if we think about the, the failures that we've had and we think about, you know, we try not to focus on those things, but those are really what make us who we are. If you haven't failed, if you haven't had a few times in your life where you just fall flat on your face, you probably don't have any really good stories to tell. You haven't taken enough risks and we all need to take those risks. That is how some of the greatest stories of our lives take place. Well, how else are we going to get the best of our life and the worst of our life? What where, what spectrum would you have afterwards if you didn't have the good and the bad and the ugly? I have epically failed, but I have epically triumphed too. You touched on this a little bit, but one of the, the points that you had made in the information that you gave me ahead of time was you really wanted to help others to view their mental health as something to embrace instead of ignore and to help each other to see that we all have something personally to work on. Unwrap that a little bit more and, and talk more about that. Being a teacher, we are constantly working on workshops and how do we become more empathetic for students and how do we help kids navigate what they're going through to try and be successful? How do we de-escalate? How do we I mean, there's a whole litany of things that we get trained on how to do, but none of it really hit home until my eldest daughter really started to have mental health issues. And so now to watch my own child, the one that you want to hold and take away all the problems and the one you want to help fix, that was when I started really figuring out, even as well-trained as I was, I was not going to be enough. We ended up getting together with her doctor, as well as a psychologist, and which we would fondly call the triad. And the triad would get together and help her. As I was raising her, oh, well, she's 22 now, so am I done? I'm not quite sure. At the age of 14, when she was at a great struggle, I would try really hard to make sure that when I phrased things to her, that it wouldn't seem like she was bad or different or broken because of her mental health issues. Because I think so many times, and I've seen it over and over in my family, over and over with parents and kids, if you try and push it under the rug, it'll just go away. I'll just ignore it. From my experience, it doesn't work. And so I would try really hard to say things like, how are you going to cope with this? How can your psychologist help you work through this? Now, going to the doctor, okay, how do we create a medicine cocktail that will help her be successful and help get her brain coordinated? Because depression is a beast. It is something that I would say, I love you. And she would tell her brain, nope, she's just saying that because she has to, because you're her mother. And she tells me these stories now, and it breaks my heart what the brain can do to words that come from a person who genuinely loves you. And it was so hard to go through these experiences. But coming out the other end, I am now so happy that we had our, had our triad and that she had the support because even on her own now, she still has what we call maintenance check-ins with her psychologist, maintenance check-ins with her doctor. Even if things are going really well, I still encourage her to just check in because if something does happen where she does end up in a crisis, that she has the ability to have the relationships already built 
so that it doesn't take her as long to get out of that crisis. Because so many times people with depression or anxiety, they they end up in that spiral downwards and it takes so long to get out of because they don't have the support resources at their fingertips. So I continue to tell students, there's nothing wrong with you. There's people, there are people who can help you that are willing to help you. And just learning some de-escalation strategies with the kids, just let's go breathe in the hallway. Here's a timer. I want you to take five minutes. What's five minutes to a class period? It may seem like the, you know, you got to be there for every minute. But for a kid who's really spiraling, five minutes in the hallway just to breathe and have somebody say, I believe in you, it makes the world of difference and gives them a point in which their day can be calm and a moment where they feel cared about. Mental health is just, it is so hard to watch people who don't have strategies or toolkits or whatever those tag words are that you want to say. If they don't get help, too many times it leads to isolation. It leads to just a constant depression, a non-happiness with life. And then, of course, the worst of all, suicides. I've had enough experience with suicides in my life that I want to do everything I can to prevent it. Teach people that it's not a bad thing to go get help. There are chemicals in our brains. Sometimes we need more dopamine. Sometimes we need more serotonin. Sometimes we just need a hug. Every single one of us needs help at some point in time or another. Tammy, it's been really great connecting with you here today and reconnecting and uh, hearing <laughs> what you have to say. We've you know, learned something about the importance of getting help when it's needed. Some of the other things I think uh, I've learned from, about, from you today is the importance of being okay to say, I don't need that. I think that can apply to lots of different things in life. Uh, the greatest stories come from the risks that we took. I still love that quote from you today. We've learned about your love of of learning. We've learned about your process and your experience with international adoption and racism. Lots of other stuff from you today. I'd like you know maybe let let us close the podcast with uh, one of those stories about how goofy and silly and fun middle school kids can be. I was taught that you should have some sort of shtick, something like silly in your classroom that you should have. And so every year when I start the school year. I start with the purpose of my rubber chicken in my classroom. And I have a dog toy that is a rubber chicken and it makes the most awful, awful noise when you release its belly. And I will tell them when you make a middle school move and I put it up in air quotes because, you know, middle schoolers do amazingly silly things. I will come over to you with the rubber chicken and I will whack you with it. It has happened twice this year already where um, one student and his friend, they were working together on a project and one was noticing a display that I had of rocks. And one of them said, hey, look at this. This has schist on it. And the other kid goes, isn't that the stuff that falls from the sky? And I'm like, did I just hear you correctly? I really hope we don't have rocks falling from the sky. And he goes, well, what's that stuff that comes down from the sky that, you know, it isn't rain? And I'm like, sleet? Yeah, that's the stuff. And he walks over to my desk. He picks up the chicken and he hits himself. So I am never, ever going home without some goofy stories from middle schoolers because they just really do the dumbest things. Thank you for that, Tammy. 
For those of you listening, if you've enjoyed the Professor Anyone podcast, please like it and put good comments by it and tell all your friends, share it so that everybody can learn from anyone on the Professor Anyone podcast. Thank you again to my guest professor, Tammy Gingrich. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again. Uh